Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Scripture reading this morning will again be Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. This is the very word of God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you humbly asking that you would indeed be here, active among us, through your word, by your spirit, Father, that it might not return to you void, but that it might renew our minds and transform our lives, that we might be equipped by it to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at the first half of this passage, and this morning, our focus will be on the second half. But but as we look at the second half of this passage, beginning at verse 23, it is important for us to remember that it is a continuation of what we have been reading. That's the significance of the thus at the beginning of verse 23. It, It reminds us that he is continuing the thought that he had begun to express. In fact, you might say that verse 23 is the conclusion that he draws from what he has said in the previous paragraph. And so look again with me at verses 15 through 22. You will remember, if you were here last Sunday, 
That in our study of these verses, we, we saw that, that at the center is a comparison between God's covenant with his people and a last will and testament. The author wants us to see that God's covenant is like a will in two significant ways. First, God's covenant is, is like a will in that there is an inheritance to be given and received. There is an inheritance at stake. God's covenant promised an eternal inheritance to those who were called. Secondly, God's covenant is like a will in that there is a death that is required. The author says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And he wants us to see that it is the same with God's covenant. In order for the promised inheritance to be given to the heirs, the right death had to occur. The death that, that truly saved them from their sins. In other words, in order for the inheritance of the covenant to be given, Jesus had to die. Jesus had to give his life to secure the eternal inheritance for his people. That's what we saw last Sunday. But as we pick up there, we, we notice that the necessity of Jesus' death was foreshadowed under the old covenant by the necessity of animal sacrifices. This is what the author is getting at in, in verse 18 when he says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. When Moses inaugurated that first covenant, the, the old covenant, we're told that he took the blood of calves and goats and he, he mixed it with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled it upon the book and the people and, and even the entire tabernacle and all the vessels that were used in worship. And he did this because under the old covenant, the shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And it is those rites, those sacrifices, that the author is referring to in verse 23. It was necessary, he says, for the copies of the heavenly things. And remember, that refers to the earthly tabernacle. It was the earthly tabernacle, which was but a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. It was necessary for the earthly tabernacle uh, uh, to be purified by the rites mentioned in the previous paragraph, because as the author says in verse 22, it was only through the shedding of blood that there could be the forgiveness of sins. Everything had to be purified with blood. But even as the author says this, he, he doesn't want us to forget that the old covenant rites, like the old covenant, covenant tabernacle itself, were but shadows. They were, were, were but a shadow of what was required. They were a picture of what was necessary, but they were not the substance. They were not the thing itself. And thus he says, it was necessary for the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. If the old tabernacle had to be purified with the rites of the old covenant, then the heavenly tabernacle that that old tabernacle represented had to be purified with better sacrifices than the Old Testament rites. They needed to be purified with something better, better than the blood of bulls and goats. And it is those better sacrifices that were necessary 
to purify the heavenly things that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. What does he mean when he says that the heavenly things needed to be purified by better sacrifices? In one sense, it's fairly clear. We, we know what the words mean. But in another sense, there's, there's significant difficulty. There are, there are at least two primary difficulties with the way that, that he puts it in verse 23. And I want us to look at both of them. The first difficulty is his suggestion that the heavenly tabernacle required purifying. Why would the heavenly tabernacle need to be cleansed? It's, it's clearly what he is saying. That's the, the clear implication of, of verse 23. It was necessary for the heavenly things to be purified with better sacrifices than these. That seems clear enough, but, but it's hard for us to understand. It's, it's hard for us to understand how the heavenly things could need to be purified. In fact, some commentators simply dismiss the idea as nonsense. That's the word that they, they actually use. They, they argue that the author cannot mean that that what he seems to mean, because the idea is incoherent, it is, it is simply incoherent to say that God's heavenly tabernacle needed to be cleansed. Well, I want to suggest to you that it's always dangerous to assume that a biblical author cannot mean what he seems to mean. Better for us to try to grapple with why he would say such a thing. Why would he say that the heavenly tabernacle needed to be cleansed? And I think we find our answer to that question when we remember why the Old Testament tabernacle needed to be cleansed. Why did the Old Testament tabernacle require the sacrifices offered up on the Day of Atonement? Why did it itself have to be purified with blood? It had to be purified because it was the place where the people of God met with a holy God. And the people of God were sinners. Their Sins defiled the, the tabernacle. Their sins required purification for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was purified, we're told repeatedly throughout the book of Leviticus, because of the sins of the people. And if that tabernacle was merely a shadow of the heavenly place where the people of God meet with God in the heavenlies, as we're so often told in the New Testament, then it makes sense that, that the heavenlies require purification because sinners are still coming. We are still defiled, bringing our defilement with us. And what the author wants us to see is that it is only by the blood of Jesus that we are able to come into God's presence and worship Him. All true worship, all true fellowship with God is made possible only by the blood of Jesus. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus' sacrifice of, of himself is the better sacrifice that is required to purify the heavenly things. It is the, the sacrifice that makes it possible for us to come into the heavenly presence of God. Just as the old covenant sacrifices purified the old covenant tabernacle, now Jesus' new covenant sacrifice of himself makes worship in the heavenly sanctuary possible for God's people. This is the author, this is what the author is, is getting at. And it has profound implications. It had, it had profound implications for the Hebrews, and it has profound implications for us today. The Hebrews who received this letter 
were thinking about going back to the old covenant sacrifices. Remember, they were, they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They had professed faith in Christ and had, and had brought trouble down upon their heads. They, they had begun to, to face persecution that they never faced under the old covenant. Rome was, was somewhat tolerant of, of Judaism, but now both the Romans and the Jews were mad at them for, for following Christ. They were facing persecution on, on both fronts, and they were beginning to think that it would simply be better to go back to the old way, better to go back to the old covenant. And the author wants them to see that going back simply isn't an option. It isn't an option because these old covenant sacrifices were never the real thing. It isn't possible because those sacrifices were merely shadows of what was required. They, they were never truly effectual. And if the Hebrews walk away from Jesus to, to go back to the old covenant sacrifices, they are going back to sacrifices that cannot truly reconcile them to God. They're going back to sacrifices that cannot bring them into the heavenly tabernacle. The only sacrifice that truly opens the way to peace with God is Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And this is the same truth that we need to see today. I doubt there are any here this morning who are seriously tempted to go back to the old covenant sacrifices. This is not really an option for us. The, the temple was destroyed a long time ago. Those sacrifices haven't been offered in centuries. We're not really tempted to go back to the old covenant system. But we do struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus' sacrifice. We do struggle to to really believe that, that Jesus is the only way. There is in the human heart this, this belief that, that says God ought, God ought to, He is obligated to, to honor and to accept human sincerity. As long as we come to Him in good faith, as long as we are honestly trying to, to worship Him, then, then, then God ought to accept our worship. If we are making a good faith effort, then that ought to be enough for God. That was actually the presumption of Cain. Maybe you remember the story. After the fall into sin, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, their, their sons, bring sacrifices to God. The sacrifice of Abel was accepted. The sacrifice of Cain was not. And Cain became very angry, and, and God came to, to speak to him. And he, he said to him simply, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And ever since God uttered those ambiguous words, people have debated, well, what does he mean by do what is right? What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? Was it that he didn't bring the best? Was it that he didn't bring blood? What was it that was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? And I want to suggest to you that the lack of clarity in the text is actually on purpose. We don't know for sure what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice. And we don't know for sure what it means to, to do what is right. And that's the point. When God said to Cain, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. He wasn't sending Cain out on an expedition to figure out the right way to worship. 
The only proper response to that question is, Lord, will you show me? Lord, will you show me how you are to be worshipped? I come to you not on my own terms. I, I come to you not according to my own wisdom, but I come to you humbly submitted to your sovereign rule. I will come to you on your terms. Because only when we come to God on his terms will we be accepted. Only when we come to him according to his word are we doing what is right. And so what does God's word tell us? It tells us that the only way to come into the presence of God, the only way to have true fellowship with him, the only way to know peace with our Heavenly Father is to come in the name of of Jesus to come under the washing of His blood. That is the exclusivity of Jesus' sacrifice. There is no other way into God's presence. It doesn't matter how sincere we are. It doesn't matter how hard we try. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is exactly, I think, the significance of the author saying that the heavenly things needed to be purified with better sacrifices than these. He is saying that Jesus' blood is the one and only sacrifice. Jesus' blood is absolutely necessary to all true worship, to all true fellowship, to all true peace with God. Apart from His blood, none may come to the Father. So that's the first thing we need to see this morning. We need to see the, the absolute necessity of Jesus' blood. We need to see that His blood is the only way into God's presence. But there's a second truth here. It's not just the exclusivity of Jesus' blood that He wants us to see. There's, a, there's another truth here, and we, we see it in the second difficulty. The second difficulty with the author's statement in, in verse 23 is his use of the plural. Why does he say that better sacrifices, plural, were required? Why does he use the plural? It, it seems at odd with his strong and repeated emphasis on the singular, once-for-all nature of Jesus' sacrifice. An emphasis that we actually see in this very paragraph. And so how are we to make sense of this? How are we to make sense of him, him speaking of better sacrifices, plural, that were required, even as he emphasizes the, the, the singularity of Jesus' sacrifice? Again, some commentators try to suggest that this is purely rhetorical, that, that a plural just simply offered a better parallel, and so therefore he used the, the plural. But I don't think that's an adequate explanation Yes, the, the plural gives us a better parallel, but there is more to that parallel than, than simply literary consistency. I believe the author uses the plural because he sees Jesus' singular, once-for-all sacrifice as, of himself as itself plural. Jesus' sacrifice of himself, his, his singular, once-for-all sacrifice, is itself plural inasmuch as it fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices. There is not one Old Testament sacrifice that, that gives us a complete picture of what Jesus has accomplished for us by offering himself without blemish to 
God. Rather, every Old Covenant sacrifice shows us a facet of what Jesus' sacrifice has accomplished. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is our sin offering. It is our guilt offering. It is our burnt offering. It is our peace offering. He is our Passover lamb, and he is the lamb offered on the Day of Atonement. In Jesus' one singular sacrifice of himself, we have all the better sacrifices, plural, that we will ever need. And so the author's use of the plural doesn't undermine the sufficiency of, of Jesus' sacrifice by, by suggesting that other sacrifices are needed. But on the contrary, his use of the plural actually emphasizes the perfect sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice by showing us that, that all of our varied needs are met in him and him alone. Think about what that means for us. If all our varied needs are met in Jesus' sacrifice of himself, if Jesus offering up himself to God on our behalf fulfills every sacrificial need that we have, then no further sacrifice is required. There is no other, there is no additional sacrifice that is necessary for us to be purified, forgiven, and reconciled to God. Jesus, once for all sacrifice, has secured perfectly and irrevocably the promised eternal inheritance for all those who are called. If the author's suggestion that the heavenly things needed to be purified emphasized the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice, his use of the plural confirms to our hearts its absolute sufficiency. And it is that perfect sufficiency that allows us to draw near to God even this morning with a full assurance of faith. Now, I know for many believers, assurance, assurance is hard to come by. We are a people plagued by doubts concerning our salvation. We, we are a people who, who struggle to be sure. We, we are a people who, who struggle to to know whether we will truly be saved in the end. Maybe you have experienced such doubts. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling with such doubts even this morning. If you know those doubts, if you, if you know the doubts that wage war against our assurance, I want you to hear me say first this morning that it is actually right and proper for some professing believers to lack assurance. It may be a good thing that you are struggling. I know that's a, that's a hard word, but it, it needs to be said. It is right and proper for some who profess to be Christians to have doubts about their salvation. It, it's right and proper because their profession is actually vain. As James says, their faith is dead. You see, we need to know in the church today that there is no value in professing faith in Jesus Christ as Savior if you are unwilling to bow to Him as Lord. An unrepentant faith is not a saving faith. Those who profess faith devoid of repentance will not be saved. That is what Paul means when he says in his letter to the Corinthians, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
You cannot live in unrepentance and still claim Christ as your Savior. But let me be clear. I am not suggesting, and nor was Paul suggesting, nor does any New Testament writer suggest that a Christian must be perfect or, or sinless. I'm not suggesting that we must obey Jesus perfectly in order to be saved. Not at all. In this life, no one will attain perfection. All will continue to sin, even as the passions of their flesh wage war against their soul. But Christians must have a posture of repentance towards their sins. That is, a, a Christian must daily renounce their sins as sins. And trusting in the mercy of God that is available in Christ, he must turn from those sins back to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Such repentance is absolutely necessary. Without it, none will be saved. And this means that the one who cherishes his sins and, and refuses to renounce them, refuses to, to turn to God in repentance, that one should lack an assurance of salvation. In fact, it is God's mercy on him that he lacks assurance. His anxiety shows that the Spirit is still at work in him, pricking his conscience. It shows that the Spirit is refusing to let him make peace with his sins. And that is grace. His anxiety is a gift. And so if you are here this morning and you lack assurance because you have never truly repented, because you have never truly turned from your sins to God, trusting in, in Christ's blood for, for forgiveness and, and strength to walk in new obedience. If you lack assurance because you have never repented, then thank God for your restless heart even this morning. Thank God and flee to Him even now in Christ's name, knowing that He is the all-sufficient sacrifice that can reconcile you to your heavenly Father. Turn from your sins and bow to Jesus even now. For in Him alone and in Him only will you find the rest for which your heart longs. But having said that, having said that it is right for some to, to struggle with assurance, I also want you to hear me say that it is not only false believers who struggle with assurance. Far too often, true believers struggle also. Far too often, because we know our sins, because we know our weakness, because we know the ways that we continue to fall short of His glory, we struggle to be sure. We struggle to believe that we will truly be saved on that day. We are plagued by anxiety and doubts. And I want you to hear me say this morning that if you are in Christ, if you have repented and believed on Him for your salvation, it is in no way right and proper for you to lack assurance of your salvation. Christians ought not to be unsure. It is common, but it ought not to be. And it ought not to be because Jesus' singular, once-for-all sacrifice of Himself is the perfect fulfillment of every necessary sacrifice. 
Jesus won his, his one once-for-all sacrifice of himself in its manifold sufficiency are the better sacrifices that are required. No further sacrifice is needed. And thus, our final salvation in Christ is not in doubt. If we have received and rested upon Him alone for our salvation, we are secure not because of our performance, but because of His finished work on our behalf. If we have received and rested upon Him, then we can know with infallible assurance that we will be saved on that day. No one who believes in Him, Paul says, will ever be put to shame. His love will never fail. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So you need to see this this morning. You need to see that the perfection of His sacrifice is the source of your infallible assurance. When Jesus appears in the presence of God on our behalf, He appears to plead the merits of His blood, even as we have sung this morning. And because He pleads the merits of His blood, His appeal cannot be denied. The promised eternal inheritance belongs to His people irrevocably. It has been secured. He then, is our perfect assurance. He is our surety. Not only is He the only way to God, but He is the sure and certain way to God. And this is the point that the the author wants us to see. He wants the Hebrews to see Jesus, that yes, He is necessary, but yes, He is all-sufficient. He is all-sufficient. Sufficient In Him, we can have an infallible assurance. Apart from Him, we have no hope. But in Him, we have a living hope that cannot be denied. And just in case we missed it, he drives this point further home in verses 25 through 28. Look again at what he says. He says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now you know that reference there to the end of the age. You might hear that phrase and think that that the author must be talking about Jesus' second coming at the end of the age. But, But remember, from the New Testament's perspective, the end of the age began when Jesus came the first time. It began when the the eternal Son of God was incarnate as a man born of the Virgin Mary. And when he suffered under Pontius Pilate, when he was crucified, died, and was buried, when he rose again, that was the beginning of the end of the age. It's why every New Testament author believes that they live in the last days. We've been living in the last days since Jesus came the first time. And so when he says that that Jesus appeared at the end of the age, he's he's talking about Jesus' first coming. And what he wants you to see is the reason that Jesus appeared at the end of the age. It was not, he says, to, to offer himself repeatedly as the Old Testament priest did. The Old Testament priests repeated the the sacrifices of atonement year after year after year. But not so. Jesus, Jesus did not come to offer himself repeatedly. 
but to offer himself once for all to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. As we've seen, the repetition of the old covenant sacrifices highlights their ineffectiveness. As the author will say in in chapter 10, if the old sacrifices had been effective, if they had effectually dealt with sin, if they had cleansed perfectly the the conscience of the worshipers, then then they would have ceased to be offered. There would have been no need to, to continue to offer them year after year. But that they were repeated shows that they were not effectual. And the exact reverse is true of Jesus' sacrifice of himself. He offers himself once for all because his sacrifice is once for all time effective. By his sacrifice, the worshiper is perfected. By his sacrifice, our consciences are cleansed by his sacrifice. Our guilt is removed as far as the east is from the west so that Paul can say in Romans that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. And again, I want you to to set your heart on the significance of that statement. Notice what the author says. He says, it was appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We, we live once. We, we, we don't believe in reincarnation. We don't get multiple lifetimes to, to get it right. It's appointed for man to live and to die once. Then comes the judgment. The day is coming when the righteous judgment of God against you will be revealed. And so what will God's judgment of you be on that day? If you're honest... If you're honest with yourself, about yourself, you know that you will not be able to stand on that day. You know, as as David knew of himself, that you have sinned and done what is evil in his sight, so that he is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. You know that you are justly deserving of his condemnation. You know That according to your own merits, that day will be for you a day of wrath and fury. If all that you have to plead is your own merit, then you have no hope in this world. But, if you stand before Him on that day in Christ, that day will be entirely different. The one who stands before Him on that day in Christ has nothing to fear. The judgment is not in question. There is to be no anxiety. For we have already received the judgment in the present when we were declared righteous in the sight of God. And the one who stands before Him on that day will be openly acknowledged and acquitted as a beloved child and heir of God. Because Jesus was offered to bear the sins of many because Jesus' blood makes perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And that is why when he returns, whenever that may be, it will not be to deal with sin. Sin has already been dealt with. And so when he returns, it will not be to deal with sin, but it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When he returns, it will be to bring to completion the good work that he has begun 
in us. So the question you must ask yourself this morning, are you among those who are eagerly waiting? Are you eagerly waiting for that day, knowing that while you have no hope in yourself, you have an infallible hope in Him? Are you among those who know that when He returns, it will not be to deal with sin, but to save those who have entrusted themselves to Him and come under the protection of His blood? Do you know that when He returns, it will be to make you an heir of the coming kingdom of God? If so, if you have entrusted yourself to Him, if you have rested upon Him for your salvation as He has offered to you in the Gospel, then even this morning you can have an infallible assurance. An infallible assurance that you will acquire possession of the promised eternal inheritance. For it has been secured not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb without blemish or spot, whom the Father put forward as the propitiation for your sins, that you might receive in Him eternal life in the coming kingdom. The day is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And if you are in Him, you've got nothing to fear. For if you are in Him, on that day, you will be called a child of God. On that day, you will receive the inheritance long promised. On that day, the kingdom will be yours. And because such an inheritance is ours in Christ and in Him alone, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the goodness of this word. We thank you for this vision of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Father, may we know that in him all the better sacrifices required have been offered. May we know that in him every necessary sacrifice is ours. And that in him we now have this infallible assurance. Father, may we learn to wait for him with eager and expectation as we long for the day when he returns to bring to completion the good work he has begun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.